You ever have one of those times where you really wanted a specific thing to eat? Maybe it's a dessert or a specific meal. You really want that thing, but you don't quite have the oomph in you to get up and make it, or the oomph to get up and go get it. You know, maybe it's out at a restaurant or your favorite uh, uh, dessert place, whatever it is. You really want that thing, but you don't want it enough to do something about that want. You ever have one of those times? I know I have. You know, faith is in many ways the same way. Oftentimes we have in faith this desire for more, but the lack of oomph to get there. Maybe you've had somebody in your life who you may consider as like a, a hero of the faith. Somebody who maybe has impacted you significantly somewhere along the lines. Maybe it's a person who led you to Christ. Maybe it was somebody who helped you along as you were growing in, in Christ. Maybe it was your favorite teacher that you, you've listened to on the radio, or you, know, you go years back, I know this doesn't hit for everybody, but maybe it was like Billy Graham, or you, you read about somebody like Corey Tenboom or Mother Teresa, and you read about their faith and you think, man, I wish I could have that. I mean, Look at all the great things they're doing for God. Look at the great faith that they're doing. It's amazing. And we sit here and we look at that, and there's various reasons why sometimes we, we can't seem to get there. Various reasons that, that we have for why it is we can't get what it is that we would like. You know, for some, they look at that person who has a, their, their hero of the faith, who has a great faith, an amazing faith, and doing those amazing things. And, and they look at their life, the person looks at their life, and they're like, here I am, and there they are, and, and there's no clear path between here and there. And so you're left wondering, how do I get from here to there? How do I get from where I am at this level of faith to be, have that amazing faith? And so we think that because there's no clear path, maybe it's not possible for us to get there. And so we settle back, and maybe we settle for a life of mediocrity of the faith. Maybe we settle for less than what could be. You know, there's another group of people out there, though, who are, who are Christians, that they look at the heroes of the faith and, and, and they want that, but they look at their life, and in order to get that, it will require giving something up. They like their life the way it is. And in order to get there, that would mean losing some things in my life to get there. It would mean giving up some, maybe some time. <clears throat> maybe it might mean giving up some, some things in my life that I enjoy. And we like our life too much the way it is to give up what would need to be given up in order to get to that level of faith that we, we want. And so, we settle back. See, the reality in that situation, or really any situation comes down to this, is that we don't want the growth in our faith enough to give up what it is that we want. And I know that's harsh. I know that. But you know what? I also know it is true. Here's how I know it's true. I've been there. I've been there. I have been at places in my own walk with Christ where I wanted to grow in my faith. I wanted more from my, from my relationship with God. I wanted to serve God in more amazing ways. But I looked at my life and where I was and I was unwilling to give up what I needed to give up to get there. So while I know it's a harsh statement, I also know it's true. And I know very various times that we can fall into that situation. 
But you know, God calls us to have an unyielding faith, one that is unwilling to give up anything in its pursuit of God. You know, Jesus talked about this and, and this unyielding faith and, and this whole issue of our willingness or unwillingness to give up or to do what needs to be done in order to get to where it needs to be. See, Jesus told the parable of the sower. You know, you know the parable of the sower. It's a story about the man who uh, went out and he, he was sowing seed uh, in various places. And, and there were four different areas that the seed fell on. and uh, you know, The rocky soil, the, the path, uh, the, the, the weed-infested soil, and the good soil. Well, in Luke uh, chapter 8, verses 11 through 15, Jesus explained that parable for us. So we don't have to try to wonder what did he mean. So Luke chapter 8, verses 11 through 15. Jesus said this, he says, the seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes along and takes away the word from their hearts so that they, not, they may not believe and be saved. I want to pause there for a moment. So there's a segment of people that where the seed, the word of God was cast to them, was given to them, but their, path, or their heart was like the, the pathway, the packed down dirt. Jesus said that Satan came along because the, the seed didn't take root and took away what was there. Verse 13, those on the rocky soil are the ones who receive the word with joy when they, hear, when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear but as they go on their way, they are, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good, that, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. So Jesus here paints a picture of four different groups of people. Four different groups of people, all four of them have God's Word sown into their heart, into their life. They were given, they heard, and interacted in some way God's Word, and this was their different reactions. The first group, they had the hard heart. In other words, though they heard the message of Christ, though they heard God's Word, they were unwilling to change anything about themselves. And so, Satan came along and took it away, so they never even turned to Christ. They heard, but they didn't respond. Now, the second and third groups of people, they also heard the Word, and both of them accepted what they heard. And they turned to God, even as uh, Jesus said, with joy. However, both groups, they didn't have an unyielding faith. You could say they had a yielding faith faith. One that yielded to whether it was the temptations or whether it was to the stuff of life, but whatever it was, they yielded their faith to everything else rather than having an unyielding faith. They didn't persevere to the end. But then that fourth group of people that Jesus talked about, that was the good soil. The seed fell there and it took root and it didn't just take root, it then grew into a plant that produced fruit. Jesus points out these four different groups of people here. This fourth group, they heard what was given to them. And they didn't just hear it. They persevered to have that great faith. Like the heroes of the faith that we may know about. They persevered. They pushed through. They did great things for God. They rose above the level of, the, of mediocrity of the faith. They wanted more and pushed to have it. 
You see, the focus here of what Jesus was talking about with each of these four groups of people had to do with the quality of the soil. The quality of the soil. See, it was ta- Jesus was talking here about the, the soil of our heart, the receptivity of our heart, of our life. Maybe you want to include the mind to hear what it is that we're hearing. Jesus even indicated that the soil was our heart. It was our willingness to respond to that which was given us. That first group was unwilling to respond any to what was given. Second and third groups, they responded positively for a little while, but they didn't persevere. It was only that fourth group whose soil of their heart was the one that produced fruit. They took what was given, and they did what they could do on their side to make sure that there was fruit produced. We may be tempted to think that, well, maybe this is something innate to us. That this is something that we are just born with. There are some people who are more receptive because their soil of their, their heart is hardened or uh, more uh, tilled, where there's other group that may be uh, less receptive, so their heart is hard. But the reality is, as, James is, or as Jesus was pointing out here, is there's not a, an issue of something being innate, innate in us, something that is, we're born with, but rather this is a choice that we make. We either choose to have the good soil or not. We choose to let the trials and temptations of life control the direction of our life. We yield to them. Or we choose to have an unyielding faith, one that chooses to yield to God instead. We give our life to God. You see, the reality is we cannot make the seed grow, but we can prepare the soil to receive it. We can't make what God gives us develop into something, but we can prepare ourselves so that what God gives us develops into something. Well, this next section of James that we're looking at today addresses this issue. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's uh, James chapter 1, uh, verses 19 through 21. If you're following along in the YouVersion app, the verses will be listed in there. So James, uh, picking it up here in verse 19. James says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. There's many perspectives on this uh, section here, on, on, on this section of, of the book of James. Some believe that in this section, James is uh, shifting topics, that he is beginning a new topic of discussion, one that has to do with the words that we say to each other. You know, it's hard to go anywhere in, in America today, and I'm pretty sure it's probably around the world, but I don't live around the world, I live here. But it's hard to go anywhere in America and not run across somebody who feels that it is their spiritual requirement to spout off at the mouth. That God has given them the expectation to let everybody around them know exactly what's on their mind. I mean, you run across this everywhere. You you open the news and you listen or read for a little while and there's somebody there and pick an area and somebody's spouting off the mouth. You travel around in your community or in, in our nation and you'll run across people who are happy to let you know exactly what's on their mind. There seems to be this idea that, that we are justified to give to other people everything that is on our mind. 
And so I can see where some would say that that would be James's direction, that that's what he was getting at. While it's completely true that we should control our speech and that we shouldn't just spout off at the mouth, I don't think that's what James's main point was here. I believe that this teaching about being slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry, I believe that can and should be applied into all of life regarding our interactions with each other. As I said, I don't believe that's James's main point in this transition. See, there's another group of scholars who believe that James is continuing his thought of what he was teaching earlier that we talked about last week. And, and I personally, I lean in that direction. That James is continuing the thought on how it is that we are to respond to the trials of life, the difficulties that come, come along. You see, James seems to be echoing some words that Solomon in the Old Testament had said. Or at least the idea of what he said. In Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2, Solomon wrote these words. He says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. And James seems to be echoing Solomon's idea there. So there's this idea of as we approach God, that maybe we need to be a little more careful about what we say. Now there is a place, I must say this, there is a place for bearing our hurts and our pains to God. There really is a place to give to God, to, you might say, vent to God about what's troubling you, what's on your mind. I mean, you read through the Psalms, and, and David, who wrote many of the Psalms, you catch there David doing that very thing where he seemed to be venting at God about what was going on. Looking at the difficulties of life and saying, God, why are you allowing this? However, if you read those Psalms, you also catch another norm within them. Somewhere in the Psalm, David is going back to recognizing who God is and who He is. So there is a place and a time for bearing your heart and your soul, your hurt and your pain to God. God's shoulders are big enough, and so even if you're venting at God, maybe a little bit of your frustration at life, God's big enough. Just remember, when you do, always remember who God is compared to who you are. Maybe even talk about that in there. So go to God with your pain. But you see, if you go back to verse 13, James warned his readers about not accusing God of bringing temptation into their life when the difficulties come along. There was that, that temptation when life's difficulties manifest themselves in life that we can potentially get mad at God about that, about those situations. And James in verse 13 warned against that. As a matter of fact, he emphatically stated that God doesn't bring the temptations into life, the, the evil stuff, that only good and perfect gifts come from God, not the bad stuff. God may allow some difficulties, but it is always for a purpose. It's almost as if James was encouraging his readers, us as well, encouraging us a little bit more during those trials. You can almost read as if he were saying something along these lines, that when things get hard, and you feel that you can't bear it anymore, when pressure of life is just bearing down because of those trials and them tempta them temptation, those temptations, control yourself. 
Don't let yourself just go off the handle in the middle of those difficulties. But keep control. He goes on then to give some examples of how and where it is that we should control ourselves during those trials. See, we have to understand something. That obedience develops from what's planted. Obedience develops from what's planted. Just like in Jesus' parable about the sower casting seed into soil. Well, James brings that idea here as well. The idea of God's Word being planted in us like a seed. And James challenged his readers to humbly accept God's Word. You see, there's that choice component on our side. We have to choose to humble ourselves before God. Just like in a garden. That if you have a garden, there is cultivating and weeding and watering that must be done to allow the seed to grow into a plant that produces fruit. I don't know about you, but I, I've had a garden various times over the years, and, and I've tried that route of do little for the garden. And let me just say it didn't do so well. I had one garden one time where my form of weeding got down to running the mower between the rows of plants. Let me just say I didn't get a lot of fruit that year. It didn't produce very well because the weeds were soaking up what the plants needed. Same is true in our life. You know, sometimes we can allow things there that, that suck the life out of the life we're supposed to have. We can't make God's Word grow inside of us to change us. But there are things that we can do to prepare ourselves to receive God's Word and allow it to grow and produce fruit. We can do things to get our mind and our heart ready to respond. We can weed things out of our life that maybe aren't helpful. We can remove things that maybe are preventing us from growing in our faith. There's things that we have to do to prepare the soil of our heart to receive what God has for us so the seed will grow and produce fruit in our life. There are many things in our life that can distract us in our faith, that can weaken our faith. James referred to many of those things as moral filth or evil. There are attitudes and behaviors and thoughts that God would not be pleased with. Things that God says are wrong. In other words, there are things that even believers may allow in their own life that God would call sin. And let me just say this. If God calls something sin and we choose to allow it, well, we may as well have gone out to our garden and planted a bunch of weeds right up against those plants that we put in to get fruit from. Because all we're doing is creating junk in our life that prevents the growth in our faith that is supposed to be there. If we choose to allow sinful patterns in our lives, well, we are at risk of yielding our faith to sin rather than having an unyielding faith. Our faith needs to be active, you see. So James encourages his readers not to, not to rush to God to complain over the circumstances. Be careful when you do that. Understand that God is allowing things in your life to mature you, to grow you in your faith, to help you to become 
what it is that He created you to be. So instead of rushing to God to complain and be angry with God over stuff, instead listen to God. Listen to His Word. And let it humble yourself before it. Let it change you. Don't become angry with God or with other people. Humbly accept God's Word. Cultivate your, the soil of your life to receive it. Then, as God's Word is planted into your heart, things will begin happening. Life will begin changing for you. Obedience, you see, will flow from what we plant in our heart. James goes on, picking it up in verse 22. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word and does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he, is, uh, what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So after pointing out that we should be quick to listen to God's Word, James ups the ante a little bit more. And not just be quick to listen to what God has to, has to say, but now James says that there is a clear distinction between merely listening and doing. Listening to God's Word and obeying. See, as believers, sometimes we can lie to ourselves. We can think that just because we heard God's Word, that life then will be different. That we have done God a favor, you could say. Because I came to church and I listened to the preacher drone on and on, therefore I have done God something good. I, I, I am better off because of that. Or maybe even because I carved out a, a little niche of time and I spent some time reading the Bible, that was good enough. I have, I have listened and that's it. But James pretty clearly here makes a distinction between listening and doing. We can, we can deceive ourselves and lie to ourselves into thinking that we have done something good by only listening or reading. And while it's true that God's Word is living and active and that God's Word does, thing, does things that we can't always understand, James seems to be making a point to help us to understand something. Is that there is something that must be done on our part. God's Word will do what God wants it to do. It's living and active. But there is a component in there that we must do. Remember the parable and the four soils? All four people, all four groups of people, all four of them heard the Word, but only one of them persevered to the end. So just hearing is not enough. There is a component that James brings forward that Jesus seemed to teach as well that is something on our side we have to do. James added, you see, inward obedience to the recipe for unyielding faith. You see, obedience develops an inward faith. What do I mean by that? By that? Well, let me, let me expand on this a little, bit, a little bit more here. James, in this section right here, he switches metaphors. He was talking about gardening, the soil, the seed, the, those ideas, and he switches from that to talking about mirrors. He just got done encouraging believers to get rid of all moral filth. And now he talks about looking in the mirror. You know, imagine it this way. Let's say you got up this morning, 
you ate your breakfast, and you decided to check yourself in the mirror before you headed off, and when you looked in the mirror, you saw you had breakfast smeared across your face. All over your face, all over your shirt, the front of you. You've got a beard, maybe it's all snuggled there, nice, nice and neatly in your beard. Breakfast is all over the place. And you turn away from the mirror, doing nothing. And think, while well, I looked in the mirror, that was good enough. We think that's pretty silly, don't we? And we realize that, that that's ludicrous. Who would do that? But that's exactly what James was pointing at here. He was saying that we can look at God's Word see the reality of what should be compared to the reality of what is and do the exact same thing as if we were to look in the mirror, see breakfast is smeared across our face and consider that good enough as if we've done something about it and go about our day oblivious. It's silliness. It's ludicrous to think that merely hearing is enough to fix the situation or as the illustration is, seeing it in the mirror fixes the situation. It doesn't work that way. You see, James had a point here. Seeing and doing nothing is not the same as seeing and doing something. Do you see the difference there? Seeing and doing nothing is not the same as seeing and doing something. So instead, James says here, he says that we are to look intently at that mirror to see what needs to be changed. As we read our Bible, as you're going along, maybe you're reading through James right now, trying to make sure you understand a little better what is it that we're talking about. And maybe as you're reading through there, you see, oh, hey, there's a part of my life that doesn't coincide with God's design. James here says, look, and as you look, see what should be compared to what is, and do something about it. Furthermore, not only are we to just look intently at the Word, James said we are to continually do that. It's the idea of repetitiously looking back to the Word. It's the idea of going back again and again and again, looking intently each time for what needs to be changed. Every single time, looking for what needs to be changed and then doing something to change it. And going back again to look to see what needs to be changed and going about doing something to change it. The Bible shows us, you see, what is morally right and what is morally wrong. The Bible shows us what God expects of us and what God doesn't want us to be able to have, a, have anything to do with. And as we read the Bible, we see ourselves compared with the perfect example. What we see in the Bible. And we are able to see what is supposed to be in our life and what's not supposed to be in our life. You could almost say that the Bible then is the mirror for our soul. It shows us what is. shows us how things really are and how things are supposed to be. We are then to act on what we learn as we look in that mirror. In other words, we are to obey what we read. Here's a cool thing, okay? Don't miss this in this. It's a pretty cool thing in here. When we do this, when we act on that obedience for what we see shouldn't be there toward what should be there, we end up finding more joy in life. James wrote that we will be blessed if we obey, if we do this thing. God's blessings on us is our joy. We find joy in God's blessings. 
Remember back to what we talked about last week about how James said to consider it pure joy, perfect joy, complete joy at the trials that we face. This is a component of it. See, as we work on obedience, greater obedience, in the middle of the difficulties of life, we find greater joy. God blesses us. Obeying God's Word develops our faith inwardly, and that inward faith brings about joy in our lives, even in the midst of the trials of life. But you know what? That inward faith that's developing, it flows over into the outside world. And James goes on to talk about that. Verses 26 and 27. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The word religious is an interesting word, isn't it? I mean, our world today, we use religious, religion one way, or religious things one way. The word that James used there, the Greek word, it had, the, it had to do with the idea of all those Christian-y things or religious things that a person does as part of their religion. So in terms of Christianity, we may look at some of those religious things as maybe going to church, maybe giving money in the offering plate, maybe serving other people. It might even include things like reading your Bible or praying. We would look at those things and many others, and we say we might be tempted to think those are religious things. And that's the idea of what James was pointing at. All of those things that a person would connect with their religion. And James says that their religion is worthless if they're missing some components in here. He's, he's saying, he's talking to those who consider themselves maybe as good little Christians. Because they do all of those Christian-y things. He then contrasts that with three different outward things that God is actually looking for as part of our religion. He talked about how God is looking for outward obedience to His commands, not just religious stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. That religious stuff oftentimes is part of what God expects of us. But we must make sure that we don't mistake and think that because we do those religious things that we have done what God expected. There's more to it. See, like, like obedience develops an inward faith, obedience also develops an outward faith. The things that God is looking for. We are to obey God, according to James here, in three different areas. By keeping a tight rein in our tongue, by caring for other people, and by keeping our life free from immorality. Back to the soil parable. Obeying God's Word planted inside of us produces this type of fruit. So James challenged his believer, or his, his uh, readers here, he challenged believers that if they claim to be religious, then prove it. Prove it by how you live. Prove it by the life that you live. Not the religious stuff, but by life in general. John, later on, years later, he would write about the same idea. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6. through six. He says, We know that we have come to know Him, that's Jesus, if we keep His commands. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, here's a harsh statement, is a liar. Whoever claims to know him, but doesn't keep his commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, God's word that is, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. In other words, we must model our life after Jesus. We must obey God. If we want to claim to be a Christian, John pointed out that if we're not trying to live that Christian life, we're not trying to be obedient to God, then we don't really know God. We don't really love God. You know, John and James both were only echoing Jesus' words. When Jesus said in John 14, 15, He says, If you love Me, keep My commands. You see, loving God results in obedience to God's commands. Our obedience then is evidence of our faith. We're going to dig more into that in a couple weeks. James talked a little bit more later on in the book, or in the letter of James. And we're going to, I'm not going to spend a lot of time right now because we'll get into that later. But for now, let's unpack these three areas that James talked about here. The idea of keeping our tongue in check caring for other people, and keeping our life clean from immorality. First of all, the tongue is the first area our religion is shown to be for what it really is. What we say, you see, matters. It's a reflection of what's inside of us. In chapter 3, James talked about this even more extensively. So I'm not going to dig into a lot of it right now, same as the other uh, point there, because we'll get into that in a few weeks as well. But I do want to talk about one little part in that for right now. I want to go back to Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 34, where Jesus said that um, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So what's in your heart? You see, James said that we are to humbly accept the word that is planted in our hearts. What's in your heart? Have you planted God's word there? Cultivated the soil? You're going to speak from what, what your heart is full of. What you say, what the mouth says, what's inside of you. If we planted God's Word in our heart, well, guess what? We're going to be saying stuff that goes in line with who God is, who He created us to be. However, if we've allowed the moral filth that James is talking about, if we've allowed that to take root in our heart, to live there, well, guess what? That's what's going to come out of our mouth as well. What we say flows from what's inside. Next, our religion is to be seen in how it is that we love other people. Remember that the greatest command is to love God with everything that we are. But the second, Jesus made a point of pointing this out for us, the second is to love our neighbor as ourselves. In other words, we are to love other people. Those two things are so closely tied together, it's hard to separate them. Love God with everything we are and love people. Love others. And James gives two examples here to make his point. Not that I, I don't believe that James is saying these are the only two areas to look at, but rather I think James was pointing to an area of their culture to help us to understand what God meant, what God expects of us. You see, in that day, widows and orphans, the ones James said that we're to look after in their distress, in that day, widows and orphans, they had nothing. Nothing. The government offered nothing for them. 
They, if, you, if a person found themselves as a widow or an orphan, they were at the mercy of anybody who might consider giving something. Now, God expected the Jews to do something, but the rest of the world, for the most part, those people were on their own. These were the people who were at the greatest risk in society. There was no Social Security or Medicare. There were no community organizations or food pantries to go to for these people. James was pointing out that we are to help those who are in most need of help. These two groups were the most vulnerable, the least heard, the most socially powerless group of people. In many ways, you could compare them to, say, an unborn child. And how it is that an unborn child has no voice and somebody needs to speak up for them so they aren't murdered. Somebody has to speak up for those who have no voice in our society. But you can find other people who fall into that category. People who are socially powerless. James is saying that believers are to take care of those who are at greatest risk in our society. Our love for others is seen in how we care for them. Finally, our religion is seen in having a morally pure life. Remember those temptations that James talked about? That we discussed last week? Well, here it is where they come into play. We need to avoid the pressure to be like, to be like those who are sinning. To be like those who are living not how God created us to live. We need to avoid and do all we can to not succumb to the pressure to condone what God says is wrong. What God says is sin. There's this work that we must do by looking intently into God's Word. We are able to see what is right and what is wrong. And if we follow what Psalm 119, verse 11 says, we will find ourselves in a better position to not fall into temptation. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, when we take in God's word, when we choose to hide it in our heart, maybe it might be something like uh, meditating on what we're reading. In other words, thinking it over and over and over in our mind to understand it better. Maybe it's memorizing Scripture. But whatever it is that you do, when you take God's Word and you implant it into your heart, you are less likely to fall into the temptations that will come your way. That's what the psalmist was getting at. Because I hide your Word in my heart, I do that so I don't fall into sin. We're then to obey what we read, what we hear, so we don't yield our faith to sin. But rather, we have an active, unyielding faith. One that is bent on pursuing God and the ways of God. And James states that our religion is worthless if it isn't something that is seen outwardly by the people around us. See, the reality is, obedience develops an unyielding faith. Obedience develops an unyielding faith. Obedience develops, you see, from what's planted inside our heart. It then develops into an inward faith that shapes everything we think and feel, which then flows over into an outward faith that shapes everything we do. You see, obedience develops an unyielding faith. We all face pressure of many kinds. Many things pressing down on us to be less than in our faith. 
to maybe be mediocre in our faith. We all are faced with those temptations and those pressures. And we all know of those heroes of the faith that we've known through the years that maybe impacted us in some way or we heard about. This is how we get from where we are to where they are or were. We can have that same faith, an unyielding one. And we have it by working on obedience. But you know, here's another one of those cool things. Two different things that I want you to remember this. Don't forget this. First of all, we are not saved by being obedient enough or being more obedient. And for that matter, we're not even saved by being obedient, period. That is not how salvation works. That's not what James was talking about. We aren't saved by how obedient we are. Rather, we are saved by grace through faith. Go back again to that 1 John passage. The verse just prior to what I read a moment ago. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. John says, I write this so that you will not sin. But, I love that word put in there, but. It shows us that there's an alternative here. That something else may happen. He wrote so that we don't sin. However, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You see, if you're a Christian and you find that you have fallen into sin, you've tried the obedience thing and you found yourself falling flat before that, you know what? There is an advocate that you have before the Father. Jesus is there. We are saved by what He did for us, not what we can do for ourselves. In Christ, if you are a Christian, your sins are forgiven. Obedience doesn't save you. However, God still expects us to pursue obedience. The second cool thing to remember here. God is actually inside of you helping you to grow in obedience. God wants you to obey, so He gives you what you need to obey. He even provides a way out when temptation comes in. God gives you what you need. He doesn't leave you to try to figure out this whole obedience thing on your own. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.13 that, that God, the Holy Spirit, is inside believers giving them a greater desire toward obedience. And that's why then later on elsewhere in Galatians 5.25, uh, Paul also encouraged us to keep in step with the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is inside of you. If you're a Christ follower, God the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And He is creating a greater desire for obedience. And it is our responsibility to learn to keep in step with the Spirit. If He says go here, we go there. If He leads us not to go there, we don't go there. But God doesn't leave you on your own to figure this whole obedience thing out. He helps you. But God still expects us to pursue obedience. And just not obedience to be saved. Rather, the better way of understanding what James is talking about here, and as we're going to talk about more in a couple weeks, is that obedience is evidence of the reality of our faith. Having that unyielding faith lived out right here in the obedience. 
Obedience develops, you see, an unyielding faith. As we work at obedience, James was just teaching those trials of life, those difficulties that come in, the temptations. As we work at greater obedience, being quick to listen to what God has to say, being quick to go back to look into the mirror of God's Word that reflects our soul and the reality of how we are compared to how it should be, as we continually to work, continually work at becoming more obedient, that helps us through those difficulties, helps us through the temptations so we can have in the middle of whatever life throws our way, an unyielding faith. In other words, a faith that's active, lived out. Not merely listening to the Word, but doing what it says.